beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you find praying easy? Do you find it natural to come to God in prayer, thanking Him for His blessings and asking Him to provide your needs? Of itself, prayer is not difficult. Even young children can learn to pray to the Lord. Yet prayer does not come naturally to us. There are many obstacles that get in the way. And so there's much to learn about how we are to relate to our Heavenly Father. When God created us, He made us to live in close communion with Him. Yet the fall into sin drove a wedge between God and us. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God, and so we may know Him as our Heavenly Father. Yet by nature, our tendency is to be independent. We think we can make it through life on our own, that we can fix our own problems. We don't always see our deep need for God. It's often a struggle for us to put our trust, our confidence in Him. If you don't see your need for God in facing the daily issues of life, you will not be inclined to call upon Him in prayer. Another problem with our prayers is that they're often self-focused. It's easy for our prayers to become a list of our needs and desires. Father, please grant me this, grant me such and such, bless this and that. The problem with such prayers is that they're very one-sided. We need to remember that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. Prayer is an opportunity to praise and adore our gracious God for all His wondrous works, to thank Him for His grace and His blessings. It's what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. It's remarkable to note that the first three petitions deal with God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And only then does Jesus teach us to lay our needs before the throne of grace, asking for our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, and deliverance from the evil one. In the first petition, Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. This should be the prime focus of every Christian's life, to praise and to glorify God. Since we're fallen creatures and cannot do this in our own strength, we ask God for help in fulfilling our calling. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. In the first petition, Christ teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. In this petition, we learn that we are to hallow God's name for what He has done, and that we are to cause others to hallow God's name by what we do. In the first petition, there's a word that's no longer all that common in our everyday speech, the word to hallow. To hallow means to sanctify, to make holy, to regard as holy. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we pray that God's name may be praised, that it may be magnified, that it is made great. In short, we're praying for the glorification of God's most holy name. We'll not ask 
But why is that necessary? Isn't God already holy? Isn't God's name already great? Why do we need to pray for this? The point, beloved, is not that there's anything lacking in God. He is majestic and glorious. He is holy. He is almighty. Our God is an awesome God. The reason that we pray for the hallowing of God's name is not because of any lack in God. The opposite is the case. The problem lies with us. Mankind does not honor and esteem God for who He is and for all He has done. Even we as Christians so often neglect to praise and adore our God. And so Christ teaches us to pray that we may hold God's name high, that we may revere Him, that we may give Him the praise due to His most holy name. In the history of God's covenant people, we see that so often they stray away from the service of the Lord their God. Much of this had to do with the fact that they did not esteem and honor the name of the Lord. It's amazing to see how at times in Israel's history, the surrounding nations had much more respect for God than the Israelites did. When Moses sent out the twelve spies, ten of them came back, and they gave a negative report about their ability to conquer the land. They said that the people of the land were strong, their cities were fortified, that there were giants in the land. The result was that the people heeded their report. They were unwilling to trust in the Lord to bring them into the promised land. Contrast that attitude with what Rahab said to the spies that Joshua sent out. She spoke about the mighty deeds of the Lord, how the terror of the Israelites and of their God had fallen on her people. Why does Rahab say this? On what basis does she draw her conclusions? On the basis of the almighty deeds of God. She said, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Throughout Israel's history, there are times when God's covenant people did not trust in the Lord and were unwilling to rely on His power and faithfulness to them. Yet time and again, the Lord vindicated His name so His own people would again trust in Him and so that the surrounding nations would see He was Lord of heaven and earth. In the days of Samuel, the Lord allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines because of the apostasy of His people. Yet the Lord caused the Philistines' god Dagon to fall before Him twice. He ravished the Philistines with tumors and death. He harassed them and afflicted them until they recognized His might and power and sent the Ark back to Israel, to Israel along with offerings and tribute. There's one other event in Israel's history we'll pay attention to this afternoon. It's from a much later time period when Hezekiah was king of Judah and Sennacherib king of Assyria was the world power to be reckoned with. 
Sennacherib had already defeated the Egyptians, and he had taken the people of Israel into captivity. He had conquered many of the fortified cities in Judah, but he had not conquered Jerusalem. His men taunted the people of God and warned them not to trust in the Lord to save them. They said, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? They asked of the gods and the nations that saved them. And they boldly asserted that the Lord would not be able to help Judah either. Yet Hezekiah was a faithful king who trusted in the Lord his God. 2 Kings 18.5 tells us there was no king before or after him who trusted like he did. Hezekiah takes the taunting words of the men of Assyria to the house of God. He lays them before the Lord. It's remarkable to see how Hezekiah prayed. Humanly speaking, he and the nobles of Israel faced death and destruction. You'd expect Hezekiah to come before God and to pray fervently for deliverance. But Hezekiah knew the Lord and trusted in him. He had a deep relationship with his God. Hezekiah understood that there was much more at stake than just his own well-being and the safety and the security of his people. King Sennacherib had trashed the name of his God. While it's true that the gods of the surrounding nations had not been able to deliver them, that's because they were not real. But Hezekiah knew the Lord to be living God of heaven and earth, the Almighty Ruler over all of mankind. Despite his dire circumstances, Hezekiah does not begin his prayer with a plea for help. He begins by praising and glorifying God's holy name. He prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. We see here at, that at the beginning of his prayer, Hezekiah glorifies the name of the Lord. He acknowledges him as living God of heaven and earth. He expresses his confidence, his trust in God. There's an important lesson in this for us, beloved. When we begin our prayers, we too should begin by praising and glorifying God acknowledging who God is, the mighty works He has done, gives glory to His name. It also lays a foundation for the rest of our prayer. If we tell God about how awesome He is, if we extol Him for His power, His grace, His love, His faithfulness, then we'll be much more inclined to put our trust and confidence in Him. Then we'll not only pray for what we really need, but we're also ready to expect good things from God's fatherly hand. After extolling the Lord, Hezekiah pleads with the Lord for deliverance. He prays that the Lord will save his people from Sennacherib's hand. Yet Hezekiah does not just pray for himself and for the people. He prays that the Lord will vindicate his name. He prays 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent, to mock the living God. Hezekiah prays, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The Lord answered this prayer. He sent the prophet Isaiah with his gracious response. The Lord responded to the Assyrians' insults, saying, Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. The Lord gives Hezekiah the assurance that Sennacherib shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. He says, I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. What happened was that an angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 men in the camp of the Assyrians. He sent Sennacherib home to be assassinated by two of his own sons in the temple of his God. Thus the Lord vindicated his name and he delivered his people. There's much we can learn from this, beloved. As sinful people, we do not always rely on the Lord our God. We don't always put our trust fully in Him. Often it's because we forget who God is and all the mighty deeds that He has done. Theoretically, we know that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that He is the redeemer of His people. And yet, practically speaking, it is easy for us to get downhearted. Sickness, loneliness, sorrows, financial hardships, family problems, whatever adversities meet us on the pathway of life, all these so easily undermine our faith and our trust in God. And that's why Christ teaches us to glorify God's name in the first petition. You see, beloved, it's when we recognize God's majestic power and wisdom in the creation of this world that we come to also depend on Him for His preserving care in our lives. Then we experience the power of God's promise that not a hair can fall from our head without His will. It is when we recognize God's grace in the redemption He worked for His people that we learn to rely on Jesus Christ for our hope and salvation. Then we experience the wonderful peace of knowing that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That we're also certain that nothing can separate us from His love. In his explanation of the first petition, our catechism stresses how important it is for us to know God. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're in the first place asking our Heavenly Father that we may rightly know Him. It's only if we know God that we can sanctify and glorify and praise Him in all His works. Here we see the important link there is between our Bible reading and prayer. 
It's through reading and studying the Bible that we learn to know God. And then every time after we read about His mighty works, we can praise Him for His wisdom or power or goodness or righteousness or mercy or truth. It's by hallowing God's name for all His mighty works that we learn more and more to trust and depend on Him for all our needs. It brings us to our second point, and it will see that we are to cause others to hallow God's name by what we do. The point here is that God desires the praise of all people. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're not just asking that God's name be glorified by us. The first petition includes a plea that God's name will be honored and praised by others because of us. Our catechism phrases it this way. Grant us also that we may direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. We pray the first petition. We're not just praying that God will help us glorify his name in our words of prayer. The scope of the first petition goes far beyond that. It does not just involve the times when we fold our hands and close our eyes. It actually involves the whole of our lives. What the first petition teaches us is that we are to glorify God in our words and works. The aim and purpose of everything that we do should be to praise and glorify God's name. The attitude of our whole life should be one of devotion to God. That, beloved, is the point of our existence. We were created to live in a relationship of communion with God. We were redeemed to praise and to glorify His great name. It's important for us to realize that God desires the praise and worship of all people. One of the things that is clear from the Old Testament is that the Lord not only concerned Himself with the people of Israel, but also with the surrounding nations. In the eyes of all the nations around Israel, God repeatedly vindicated His name, showing Himself to be living God of heaven and earth. In the ten plagues, God showed forth His power over the Egyptian gods. In bringing His people into the promised land, God showed He was stronger than the gods of the Canaanites. Throughout Israel's history, God showed His might over against the gods of the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. As the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, God has a claim on the life of every human being. He created mankind to praise and glorify Him. Now today, there's many around us who do not acknowledge God's claim on their lives. There are many who do not know Him as Creator of the heavens and the earth, or as the Redeemer of those who believe in Him. As a result, a large segment of our society does not give God the praise and glory due to His name. Because of this, the Lord Jesus taught us how important it is to let our light shine into this dark world. He said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father in heaven. One of the reasons why we are to live godly lives is as a witness to those around us that our friends and our neighbors may also come to know God and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Our catechism teaches us to pray that our Father will help us direct our whole life in such a way that His name is not blasphemed because of us. Beloved, we should never forget that we bear the name of Christ. And many people in the community around us know us to be Christians. They see us getting drunk at the pub or the nightclub. We bring shame on the name of our Savior. If they feel ripped off by us in some kind of a business deal, then God's name is dishonored because of us. Sometimes you hear the question asked, how could he or she do that? You're Christians, aren't you? And then you feel discouraged because the actions of a few bring the name of Christ and of his church into disrepute. The Apostle Peter encourages us to live godly lives so that the name of the Lord our God may be honored by those around us. In 1 Peter 2, he speaks about how God has chosen us as his own special people so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter urges us to abstain from the sinful desires of the flesh, to live such good lives among those who do not know Christ, that they may see our good deeds. For when they observe our good works, even in the face of scorn and reviling, perhaps they'll see that we're special people, and then perhaps in His grace God will cause them to come to know Him and to praise and to glorify His name. The same theme comes through in 1 Peter 3. Peter calls us to live in harmony with one another, to be sympathetic, to love as brothers, to be compassionate and humble, not repaying evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead blessing. He teaches us to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There may be those who defame us and revile us because of our faith in Christ. And yet, by consistently living godly lives, by continually loving our neighbor, Peter says, they may become ashamed. God can and does use our witness to the world to bring others to His wonderful light. And so we see, beloved, some of the lessons that our catechism teaches us about praying. In our prayers, we are to first focus on the mighty deeds of God, to adore Him for His wondrous works that He has accomplished on our behalf. 
focusing on God's deeds helps us grow in trust and confidence that He's willing and able to answer our prayers and fill our needs. Yet hallowing God's name is not just restricted to the times when we formally address God in our prayers. The glorification of God's name needs to become the most important focus of our lives. It's for this purpose that God created mankind and that He has redeemed and renewed us. God wants to use us as instruments by which He also draws others to faith in Christ. So let us heed the lessons in prayer that our catechism teaches us with the whole of our life, our thoughts, words, and actions. Let us glorify and praise God's holy name. Amen.